This is Knesset Corner with Rabbi Dov Lippmann. I'm Scott Kahn, and Rabbi Lippmann, today I wanted to talk about the recent Supreme Court overturning of the Haredi draft exemption law. But before we do so, I think it's important to talk about what happened two days ago, the horrific terrorist attack in Har Adar. I know that three people who were guarding the settlement were killed, and it's just such a terrible thing to see this back of the news again. So first of all, you know, I'm, I'm happy you used the word settlement to give me the opportunity to explain. Uh, I visited Haradar to visit one of the families that's in mourning. And, you know, sometimes we use the word settlement and you imagine some kind of a outpost and some caravans in the middle of a heavily Palestinian area. And this is an Israeli city, uh, which happens to be close to some Palestinian areas, but it's a city. It's a regular city, beautiful houses. People have been there for years. It's been quiet. And they've enjoyed remarkable relationships with the Palestinian villages nearby. Even though they're difficult villages, many, many Palestinians... What do you mean difficult villages? They're, they're villages where we know terrorists have come from and where there is extremism and significant incitement towards violence. But Palestinians have come on a daily basis for years to Haradar for work. We have to remember that. They're coming for work. It's Israel providing employment for Palestinians. And the people in Haradar were telling me how shocking this was for them because even the terrorist himself is a guy who worked in people's homes regularly. One person told me I would leave this guy with my kids to watch my kids. Wow. He, worked, he cleans our house on a regular basis. And it's a shocking development because sometimes when we hear terrorism, we, we talk about conflict and Palestinians living in horrible conditions. And, and of course they lash out against Israelis. This is a Palestinian who was employed by people in Har Adar with a legal work permit. With a legal work permit, who came to Har Adar to carry out a terrorist attack in the place where he has been employed and supporting his family. The only way to explain it, there's no other way to explain this, is the incitement that's going on in the Palestinian areas, where this guy, apparently he had some kind of an issue in his family, his wife left him or something, and his life was a little bit challenging, and here he hears on a daily basis the following. If you kill Jews, wherever it is, you're going to get the most wonderful heaven imaginable. You will be a hero in Palestinian areas. You'll go down in the history books. You'll be, uh, there'll be uh, public squares named after you. And your family be, will be rewarded financially for the rest of their lives. So someone who's in a situation of desperation, his wife left him, he's, things are happening, these things are desperate, all of a sudden, all of this incitement comes together, and he says, I have no choice. I'll go kill Jews. I'll get my place in the world to come. My family will have financial support forever, and this is what has to stop. This is the issue that has to stop. It's nothing that Israel is doing to the Palestinians, not this Palestinian, that's leading to this action. It's the incitement and the world has to come together and put it to a stop. I don't even know if it's relevant to mention it, but I'm going to anyway. One of the three people killed was actually not a Jewish person. He was an Arab. I do think it's relevant, and I'll tell you why. I went to the house of that Arab, to Yusuf's house in Abu Ghosh, to visit with his family yesterday, and I sat with his father and with his uncle, and his uncle actually said to me, he said, let's even say this terrorist thought he was doing something for the Palestinian cause. He said, now every single Palestinian who was working in Har Adar and was employed there is now going to be a suspect. It's going to make it much more difficult for them to get in there. And all it's doing is causing problems for them. He said, aside from the fact that we are now in mourning as Arabs uh, for the rest of our lives over the loss of our son and nephew, this whole thing is backwards. And he even said to me, he said, this is an aberration. This extremism is taking hold all over Islam. He said, it's destroying our religion. We have so 
so much in common. We can live here together uh, in peace, Jews and Arabs, if we just get rid of this extremism. And I agree with that 100%. The question is, how do you do that? But but in terms of the reality, I think it is significant that an Arab was killed and that we as Jews can join together with them in mourning. As one of them said to me, uh, we have a joint lot here. We're here together living in this country and we're both Jew and Arab are fighting against this Palestinian and Islamic extremism. Well, that's a note of hope in the midst of this really terrible situation. But you are raising an interesting point about working together and the suspicion that is now going to be on other Arabs who have done nothing wrong, who've been working there for years and who have legal permits. What do we do about that? What should someone who lives in Haradar do at this point when a person has a legal permit and he sees what can happen? You know, Israel is stuck in this horrible situation where on the one hand, we as a people who believe in equality, believe in not discriminating, we want to give the Palestinians opportunity. So we let them come and work right here in Beit Shemesh, where I live every morning. I drive my kids to school and, and I see tens and tens of Palestinians waiting for work here. This is something which Israel really has to think through. The, the, the challenge, the balance on the one hand of human rights and giving people the opportunity for employment, but also protecting us and our security. And there's no doubt that there's going to be significant, significant work done within the Shabak, the Israel Internal Security Agency, to try to weed out even further who we cannot allow in, to be monitoring people that are allowed in, if there are things that are happening in their lives. It's complicated, but this is what we have to do to try to find that balance. We don't want to close the gates and say no Palestinians can work in Israel. On the other hand, we have to be so cautious because every single Israeli city has Palestinians working there, and every single Palestinian that comes in could, in theory, be affected by the incitement and could be uh, in a situation just like this terrorist the other day. Now let's move on to the other topic we're going to talk about. Let's talk a little bit about this recent Supreme Court overturning of the Haredi draft law. First of all, what exactly happened? How did the Supreme Court overturn a law that's been on the books for so long? So a lot of people don't realize the history here. I'm a member of a party called Yeshatid, and people say Yeshatid made it its flag issue to draft the Haredim. It was, we decided to do this. The Supreme Court years ago said that there's a lack of equality. There's a basic constitutional law uh, in Israel that there has to be equality in Israeli society. And the reality of over 60,000 young men uh, between the ages of 18 and 24 receiving a blanket exemption from serving in the military is a lack of equality. The, the, the original arrangement with the Haredim was that certain elite scholars who were going to be studying Torah day and night, they're the ones who are receiving exemptions because that's a service to the Jewish people that they're studying the Torah day and night and hopefully will become leaders religiously in the future. But this idea that every single Haredi could just come into the draft office and say, I'm Haredi, I'm learning Torah, is a lack of equality. So the Supreme Court required the Knesset to pass legislation to create equality. This was in 2012. The Knesset tried. It failed. And we went to elections because of that. The government fell apart over that issue. So Yeshatid then came into office on the heels of that, and we worked for a year and a half. In direct response to that Supreme Court mandate. The Supreme Court mandate to the Knesset. We worked for a year and a half. I was part of the committee that drafted this legislation I won't even, with the hours, meeting with Haredi leaders, meeting with secular leaders, meeting with the army to put together a law which, which on the one hand... Were Haredi leaders willing to talk to you? Absolutely. We met with Haredi leaders on the highest of levels. The law that we created, on the one hand, preserved 
the notion in the Haredi world of Torah to umnato, that those who are studying Torah, this is their only pursuit. All they want to do day and night is study Torah, could continue learning uh, Torah. And actually, we in the law, we changed it. And we said they're not exempt from serving. That is their service. Everybody serves, and that is their service. And that's how you get around the equality issue for the Supreme Court, probably. Uh, on one level. But the biggest way we got around the equality was we said, but everybody else, they don't have to serve at 18. We understand. Even my son... Went to yeshiva after high school for a few years. That's a value which we don't want to in any way take away. But after a few years, if they're not studying Torah day and night, they must serve either in the army or in national service. We created all kinds of national service options. And even in the army, we created a mandate for units that were designated to the ultra-Orthodox and all kinds of programs to help them. And that was the law that we passed with goals per year of how many would be serving. You said that they're not learning day and night. But those 60,000 young men will claim they are learning day and night, whether it's true or not, is a different issue. Correct. So this is where there has to be some honesty. We met with the Rashi Yeshiva, the heads of these yeshivot. They looked at us and they said, any boy who's not studying Torah day and night has to go to the army. They said that. The gedolim, the highest possible levels, they said if they're not studying Torah day and night. So I've been in yeshiva. And uh, I've spent many years in yeshiva. And yes, there's always a group of guys who are literally Torah to Every second they have, they're in the Beit Midrash. They're studying. That's all they want to do. That's the classic category of those who, by the way, there are opinions early on that they don't even have to pray because they're just studying Torah. But the rest of them are yeshiva guys who they, they'll come in the morning, they'll learn in the afternoon. They're good people. I'm not, I want to be very clear because sometimes it's misunderstood. They're good, religious, upstanding boys, but they're not studying Torah day and night. They will go out to the shawarma place together. They will go to play football. They will go to watch the Knesset. We used to have tens and tens of Haredi boys watching us in the Knesset. And that's fine. They're normal. They want to do that. But don't tell me that's Torah to umnato. We don't want to create a scenario, nobody wants it, where... There's checks going on in the yeshivot and no one's going to go into yeshivot and arrest anybody. It was simply, I want, I'll call it an honor system on a certain level, but there was a willingness from the rabbis to work together that after a few years, the boys should go to the army. And that was the law that we passed. We're not going to go arrest anyone, nothing. The current government came in and the ultra-Orthodox leadership, political leadership, was under pressure to do something to take care of the, the law that was passed beforehand, which did cause no damage to the Haredi community. And they tinkered with it. They basically pushed off because our law, there was a carrot and a stick. The stick was if they don't start serving, then at a certain point, they just have to be drafted. That was sort of the idea. Listen, if you're not going to play by the rules of the country, then at a certain point, everybody just gets drafted. And they pushed off the stick. And that, the Supreme Court said, okay. So now the carrot is still there. Yeah, the, the Supreme Court said, you've gotten rid of the equality. There's, no, there's nothing happening here. And the Supreme Court said, we need a law of equality. By the way, no one should think that this was some kind of judicial overreach or the MKs know they have to pass a new law. They've already met together this week and they said, we have to do something. And they know they can't ignore it. They know that they've allowed something of inequality to take place and they have to address it. The Supreme Court was dealing with the undoing of the law that Yishatid had spearheaded a few years ago as opposed to the long-standing law. The Supreme Court was complaining about and declaring illegal the fact that the stick was taken away. Correct. And let's remember also when we say the Supreme Court was complaining about, people in Israel came and sued the state. There, was a, there were suits that were brought to the court. It was people who said, my child, 
is serving in the army. It's not easy for anyone. And I have to say, I have a whole different perspective now that I have a child in the army. It is very, very different when you when you see what your child is going through. And my child likely will not be home for uh, Yom Kippur and Sukkot. And he could be sitting in yeshiva and learning, but this is part of certain, being in a Jewish state as we have an army. There, there is a feeling of inequality inside. There is a feeling of, why is there a blanket exemption? Because people come from a certain community and have political parties that are protecting them from going to the army, uh, there is inequality, and we have to address it. And it's the Supreme Court not overreaching in this case at all. It's simply saying there's a constitutional law of equality, that equality is being violated here, and something has to be done to address that. So do you think that the new law that's going to come as a result of this, you just said that the MKs realize something has to happen, is the new law going to be similar to the legislation that Yeshatid passed a few years ago, or something radically different? I actually think what they're going to do is, yes, they will go back to our law, and they'll find some way to sell it to the Haredi community that they've tinkered with the law and preserved the Haredi, meaning it's, it's a political maneuver. That's it, from A to Z. It'll be our law. Because if it's our law, we went as far as you could possibly go to greet the Haredi community. I'll tell you something which a lot of people don't know. We met with one of the leaders of the Haredi community, and he told us the law is fine. There was one part, they, they didn't like one part of it a little bit just in terms of goals and numbers, and, and, but fine. But he said, if we're happy with the law, he said, we're going to demonstrate no matter what. There's going to be a demonstration. That's what we do. If we're unhappy with the law, it's going to be a demonstration with speeches of fire and brimstone against the horrible czarist government of Israel. If we're happy with the law, it's going to be a prayer rally. A prayer rally with no speeches, but we'll gather together and we'll pray. After the law was passed, they announced the prayer rally. And that's all they did. There was no speeches against the government. They prayed together. And that was the, the message. For me, that was the wink. The law is just fine. We went so out of our way to meet the Haredi community with this law. So I do think they'll just go back to our law and maybe try to find one law, one line here or there to tinker with. And then they'll be able to tell the Haredi population, oh, we salvaged it, but we'll go back to the law. By the way, despite all of this noise, the number of Haredim that are serving continues to grow. It's at its all-time high. Unbelievable numbers. And here's the key point which people don't realize. The increase is in Haredim 18 to 21. Many people think, oh, they're later in life, they're married, they people cost who a lot get of money, jobs, yeah. want to get jobs. Because once we've introduced all these new paths for them, all these new units, they're units where they don't have female commanders, they have prayers three times a day, they have time to study, there's yeshivot that have been organized quietly, with, which combine together learning Torah and going to the army. As that becomes more and more known and they start seeing guys, you'll see even more. Because I have to tell you, if you're 18, 19, or 20 years old and you see soldiers being buried and you see wars and you're sitting in your air-conditioned study hall, studying, and in your comfortable dorm room, when you know that there are guys out there in the field, something inside of you says, this is not right, if I'm not really studying Torah day and night. There's a soul, and they're coming, and when they go to the army, they feel fulfilled, they feel like they're accomplishing. I meet with these soldiers regularly, they feel incredible. For the first time in their lives, they feel a certain self-worth, because, yeah, they were studying Torah, but they weren't really the dedicated ones, and now all of a sudden they feel like they're accomplishing something for the Jewish people, for God. It's a religious and spiritual experience as well. So let me ask one last question about that. In your ideal vision, how many people would be granted blanket exemptions for being full-time Torah learners day and night? Yeah, I, I actually made a mistake when I first got involved in politics and I started talking about numbers. And I admit to anyone who uh, criticizes me for it, it was a mistake. I, I can't 
tell you what number it should be, but we have to have a process develop where those who are not studying Torah day and night are encouraged to go after a few years. Study Torah for two, three years, it's important, and then you know go out and serve in the army. So there's no number. And if somehow we do all of a sudden realize that there are 20,000 guys who are really studying Torah day and night, or 40,000 guys, then it's a whole different world in terms of what we would be, but, but that's not the reality right now. Studying Torah day and night as the only thing that you want to do is not normal. It's not a normal thing. The average child does not, again, the average yeshiva boy, wonderful young men, they're learning Torah, they're keeping Jewish law, they, but they're not studying Torah day and night as their only pursuit. So it's unlikely. The Talmud says that many people tried to live like Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who was in that category, and they failed. So in the time of the Talmud, the majority tried to live that way and failed. So in our times in 2017, it's not going to be uh, an overwhelming number. So I'm not going to put a number on it, but I hope that we reach a point where we have some kind of internal integrity and decency and sincerity, and those who are not studying Torah day and night will serve, either in the army or national service, they'll go out to work, and let those select few who are truly studying Torah day and night show the state of Israel, the beauty of Torah, and, and represent that ideal, so to speak, of those elite few that will help Israel on so many levels, even in the religious-secular divide. Only good things can come from that process. I know you mentioned in a blog post you wrote about a week ago in the Times of Israel that you felt that it was a disgrace towards Torah as much as a disgrace towards the state of Israel when people who are claiming to be learning actually aren't doing so because of the denigration of Torah itself. If I'm a secular Jew in Israel, and I'm hearing about this Torah Tomato. Torah is their life, and that's why they're not in the army. And then I go to a Paul Jerusalem game, and I see a row of Haredi boys there. I said to myself, oh, I thought they're studying Torah instead of serving. I have nothing wrong with people going to a basketball game, but don't say Torah Tomato. They go drive through Jerusalem, and they see shawarma places on Thursday night filled with yeshiva guys while their children are serving the army. Wait, I thought you want to study Torah day and night is your only pursuit. It, it reduces Torah. Let it be that, yes, we're religious boys, we're Talmudic scholars, and we serve in the army, and those elite few, you will not see them at the basketball games or in the shawarma places. That'll raise the glory of Torah and restore the, the place that Torah should have in the society of a Jewish state. I wish you you as well and to all the listeners. I'm Scott Connors, Rabbi Dov Lippman. You've been listening to Knesset Corner.